Here we go, August 19th, 2012, lecture discussion number 79 on the book of Romans. And uh, before returning to the final throws, uh, you notice I cleared the board today because I'm not going to get to the final throws today of Acts 2 and Exodus 20 and 21 and Revelation 6, 7, 8, and 9. Those are, as you remember, I hope you remember, those are three parts of God's three-part sermon. And notice how difficult Revelation is all the time. I start out Revelation 6, now I've got to add Revelation 7, now I've got to add Revelation 8, then I've got to do Revelation 9. It continues to grow. It's really hard to stop part 3. God, um, interrupting God is very difficult. It's impossible. And he just makes sure the tribulation is known essentially as the third part of his three-part sermon that begins in Exodus 20, goes to Acts 2, and is completed in Revelation 6, 7, 8, and 9. And guess what? It'll keep going all the way to Revelation 20, certainly 19. So again, interrupting him is impossible, and that's a that's a process, but we have to still do it. We have to stop, and I'm going to eventually. And we'll get to more of that in a minute, maybe. Uh, Probably not, because what am I doing? I'm stalling again. Yes, I'm... I'm Mr. Bojangles, because I know uh, that uh, that we have everybody doing all they can to get out into the uh, Alaskan summer at 55 degrees and snowing. Got to, got to catch one more fish, even though it's rotten. I get it. So I don't want to go back to Romans 5, which is the typology of Adam and then feel like I've got to keep repeating enough of it to get everybody caught up. So I'm stalling again. But for those who were here last Sunday, uh, which considering we had, what, great, pretty good weather, uh, there wasn't very many of you, and pretty much the band and, and only the highest and the most holy, which is what do we call what? Highest uh, and the most holy. Hamich. Sounds kind of like an, uh, an Israeli word, right? Hamish, oh, speaking of that really fast, are you watching what's going on over there? Uh, they are declaring that Israel will soon be annihilated, that they are an embarrassment uh, to the Middle East, and they're going to take them out. And Israel knows it. And we have an election coming, and we, as, as you know, the, the, probably in my lifetime, maybe you can make the case for Carter, but as hostile a government, federal government to Israel as I've seen in my lifetime, which um, um, I think that they're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, this government could uh, continue. And so I suspect that Mr. Netanyahu will take advantage of that and we will see a Middle East. Um, well, I'm, I hate to predict anything. You know, I don't know anything, but it just seems likely to me if I was sitting at that card table I would suspect Netanyahu makes a move uh, while he can. Because he may not be able to if he doesn't. And they are threatening him greatly over there every day, as bad as it has been in many, many years. Okay. If you were here last week, uh, if you were in the band and you were the highest and most holy, and, and that doesn't exclude the band from being highest and most holy, by the way, in case uh, you want to lord that over them. Anyway, I left off with C.S. Lewis, a, a Grief Observed, and I made a lot of comments about it. First and foremost, he does not call it his grief or my grief. He calls it 
a grief, very, very significant. The man observed, observed there, got it. He got it absolutely correct, as you would expect him to do. Uh, a man of, of his ability to consider all the processes that he could have considered. It's a short book. It's written by C.S. Lewis uh, just a couple of years from his death. And uh, it is remarkable. He is mourning the death of his wife in this book. And, it, and again, it's remarkable. I submit that it is the culmination of his life's work. And therefore, his greatest analysis of biblical truth. I, I make a point of, and I did not know, that that is essentially the last thing he had done. And I try to collect the last things that, uh, that scholars do. And he was, as I said, he was confronting the loss of his beloved wife. And he did so, having been given by God an extraordinary intellect, coupled with a profound scriptural understanding but he also had an emotional incoherency uh, while he's doing it. And he knew it. He knew that he was not stable while he was writing this. And this was part of his process of wrestling with his instability. And so Lewis uh, argues uh, death with himself. And, And he argues it with his wife. Even though she has gone to him, he argues with her, and he argues with others. Uh, a grief observed is, as he calls it, a disassembly of his temple of cards. He looked at his doctrinal positions, and he recognized that much of what he thought was a temple of cards. And I think that is a, an extraordinary, astonishing thing to, re, to do, frankly. That is why it is so valuable. And C.S. Lewis goes about chronicling the collapse of his own card structures as well as anybody else's that happens to be around, which is another reason why the book is so valuable to you and to me and to anyone else. Anyone else that got close got smashed if they happened to be in his neighborhood. I said last Sunday to many of you that I, I was overwhelmed at how easily C.S. Lewis smashed commonly held notions uh, in the uh, seminaries or in the doctrinal circles that are perceived by those who hold them as unassailable. Instead of being strong, defensible positions, which they're so sure they are, the people that hold them, they are revealed by Mr. Lewis as ridiculous thinking and not worthy of any further consideration. And he does it with such ease. That's what struck me at which he just does it so simply and so quickly, just in sentences, not in paragraphs even. And I read it and I went, my goodness, I have spent 15 years of my life, at least the last 15 years and probably 25 or 30, trying to do what he did in a sentence. And so um, it reminded me, and I said last week to a couple of you, as you know, I've been playing the trumpet again, and I've been watching Al Hurt on YouTube. And watching Al Hurt play the trumpet makes me want to take my trumpet and throw it in a dumpster. And that's how I felt when I was reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, I did the same thing when I saw Bela Fleck play the banjo. I searched for a dumpster to throw my trumpet or my banjo into. And, and that, of course raises the old banjo joke, right? I only got a couple of banjo jokes, and everybody has heard them that is here. 
But who hasn't heard them? That's right. 2,500 people on the Internet have not heard any of my jokes. And so what do you have, what's your obligation? That's right, to keep laughing at them no matter what. In order to build this illusion that uh, we are not that badly outnumbered. But we are. This is, we're Custer and they're the Indians. And if they, they ever come for us, we're, we're finished. But anyway, the old banjo joke. What? Why do you roll up all the windows and lock all of the car doors when you're transporting your banjo? Yes, to keep people from throwing in more banjo. Okay, that's a, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> people ask me why I play the banjo. And I said, you should, to torment the children. I, I, it really, it really was. Oh no. I, I used to make them watch golf and then listen to the banjo. And Christopher had to play basketball, which scarred him forever. Anyway. I'm not doing a grief observed enough justice. So let me read a few excerpts. I didn't bring the book because uh, I didn't want uh, Lindsay to take it back from me. So uh, I'm not doing it enough justice. Let me read a few excerpts and try to correct my injustice. Uh, When he gets into the topic of monistic physicalism, which has to come with death, right? When he begins to confront monistic physicalism, and that's the physio—I'm sorry—the philosophical viewpoint that asserts that humanity is merely physical, that we have no spiritual component, and all of you, I'm sure, know that, but some do not. So be tolerant and indulgent. C.S. Lewis responds to physicalism with the following. He says this. I'll put it on the on the board. I have to get it as right as I can. So let me carry this over here so I don't make an error. If H is not. So you see mathematically immediately, he's going to use just standard geometric logic. If H is not, okay, then, so we have an if then, then she never was. If H is not, then she never was. That is his response to physicalism, to evolutionary philosophy. Okay? I should say really fast why he identifies her as H. What he was writing, he didn't intend anyone to read. So he was keeping the names difficult to decipher. Obviously, He didn't want to identify himself or herself. If H is not, then she never was. That's his response to Darwinian evolution, uh, which, of course, is physicalism, which, of course, is monism. And what Lewis is saying, if his wife has ceased to exist, then she never existed. So, when you go to college... And your biology teacher says, evolution must be true, say, if H is not, then she never was. Because that destroys it. Let me read it in its entirety. As you know, I started out debating evolutionary philosophy, which is cessation of existence, right? 
That's how I began to debate it. Um, and it never occurred to me to do that. And when I read it a few weeks ago, I was just stunned at how fast the debate is over. I'm going to read it in its entirety he, he, and, and do the best I can. If H is not, then she never was. I mistook, this is C.S. Lewis speaking, I mistook a cloud of atoms for a person. There aren't and never were any people. Death only reveals the vacuity that was always there. What we call the living are simply those who have yet to be unmasked, all equally bankrupt, but, but some not yet declared. What he is saying there is that if, if H is not, if she ceased to exist, that she was a cloud of atoms and not a person. If there is only the physical reality, monism, if all we are is physical, there is no spiritual component, all we are is a, uh, is a chemical process, and we cease to exist when we die. If there is only the physical reality, if we, were, if we are only a mass of particles without a supernatural, spiritual, non-physical, eternal soul, and we don't exist... I'm sorry, then we don't exist and never have existed. Physical, physicalism declares you never to exist or never was. And then death is the vehicle that demonstrates the void or the hollowness or the barrenness that is us. That is uh, how he responds to materialism evolutionary philosophy. You see, C.S. Lewis is arguing that existence requires continued existence or continual existence. Or without the continuity of the soul, existence is meaningless, vacuous. And what the physicalist or the evolutionist calls existence is actually an extremely short period of erroneousness, a misconception, a mistake. It's not existence. If you cease to exist, then you never existed. That's what he's saying. And the physicalist says you never exist. That it's a mistake to think you exist. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he responds to the physicalist who says that if you, you are making a mistake to think you exist. He says this, Mr. Lewis does, this is nonsense. I will never believe, more strictly, I can never believe that one set of physical events, which would be me, I am a set of physical events to the evolutionist, one set of physical events could make a mistake about another set of physical events. Say, what's my mistake? I am a set of physical events. I look at Supper Dave or Ben and I say, they exist. How can I? I'm a mistake. How can, I'm just a set of physical events. How can I make a mistake about another set of physical events and mistake him for existing? Does that make sense to you? Probably not. We will continue. I didn't say it was going to be easy. Let me reword it. How can a cloud of atoms mistake another cloud of atoms for a person who exists? Does that help? And so someone must perceive us 
as ceasing to exist, for us to cease to exist. Does that make sense? Probably not. That's okay. Lewis calls this vacuity revealed to whom? And hopefully you recognize it as George Berkeley, as a rewording of George Berkeley, who I'm sure C.S. Lewis was very well aware of. Who perceives the bankruptcy? In other words, if death reveals that I'm bankrupt, how does anyone know I'm bankrupt? Someone must know I'm bankrupt for me to be bankrupt. Perception. Who is aware of the cessation of existence, Mr. Lewis X? Is it another equally empty cloud of minute particles that is now aware of my cessation of existence? How can I prove anything ceases to exist? What kind of authority does it require to declare something ceasing to exist? How does one know something ceases to, cease to exist? How is it that I think you don't cease to exist if I don't exist? Is it another person who is also mistaken for thinking they're a person? And by those who themselves are mistaken as person. <laughs> as existing, the wind will likely blow this incredibly complex repair away. Don't worry, it's held on by small ropes. I'm sure it'll reach the road. And it'll disrupt the Greek festival, which could be cool. But again, if that blows off, run for your lives. <laughs> You'd be surprised the people that write us uh, when I do things like I've just done. I allude to the weather. We had one time where it was booming in here. And the wind was blowing really bad, and they were all worried for our survival. And, uh, and they were right to worry. I just want to point that out. Well, they should scare. They should be. I want them scared. That's my plan. They, they can't hear you. They can't. <laughs> I'm not. No. Okay. Where was I? Who is aware of our cessation of existence? Is it another one who is mistaken about themselves? Is it a whole bunch of people who are mistaking each other as existing? One mistaking themselves as persons, another mistaking all of them as persons. In other words, if we're all mistaking ourselves and each other, who is aware of anything? And this type of thinking, by the way, is the basis of materialism or reductionism. It's their foundation. It is the the core of evolutionary philosophy. That's what it is. You are not a person. You are mistaking yourself as a person. If you think somebody else is a, mis- uh, is, a, is a person, you're mistaking them for a person. If you're all thinking each other is a person, you're all making mistakes at the same time. And you all cease to exist and you're not persons and you have never existed. That's evolutionary philosophy. You wonder why our schools are a wreck. And our colleges are a wreck. That goes, that is supposedly... Intelligent thinking now. And if you don't believe it, you're not eligible to run for political office or sell chicken. Huh? C.S. Lewis writes that he did not and does not fear materialism. He saw it for what it was. And he says this, If materialism were true, we, or what we erroneously call we, would end. And that means that 
there would be escape from the physical reality. What he feared was the continuousness of what uh, he saw of his grief. Or what the hyper-Calvinists, by the way, the extreme Calvinists refer to as the evil that is God. They call God the cosmic sadist. Very common in their writings. And, and of course, the evolutionist says that Christians um, had the view that God is a cosmic sadist. Well, they're referring to the hyper-Calvinist. And I've said this many times. The extreme Calvinism position and the evolutionary position share the same view that, that if God exists, he is sadistic. And if you're agreeing with them, be suspicious of you. Chances are uh, you're not doing well logically. Uh, he is called the great dissector. Uh, actually, it's uh, vivisection or vivisection, if you're familiar with that. That was very common in the early 1900s. Uh, it's still common today. Not as much, but um, they would dissect animals alive. So, you'll see that reference to God, the great dissector of the living. And C.S. Lewis then quickly dispatches and debunks that silly notion as well. But first, I want to make sure that everyone has begun the puzzle that is, if H is not, then she never was. Or again, if there is no continued existence, then there was no existence at all. Or there is no existence. All that we have is bankruptcy yet declared. Does that make sense to everybody? I want you to wrestle with that. I'll try to get it, get you through it a little bit. How come I won't just lay it out for you? You have to be able to work it through yourselves so that you can do what? Explain it to others. Now, some might immediately argue that we exist now, though we will very soon cease to exist. That's classic hedonism. That is, you only exist for a short period of time. It's the Budweiser commercial, right? You only exist for a short period of time, so what do you got to do? You got to take care of yourself. You got to do something for yourself. It's all about you. It becomes classic hedonism, which causes a response from the other side, of course. Do you, um, do you really exist? Or do you merely think you exist when in fact you don't exist? Now we're into Rene Descartes, right? I think, therefore I exist. Or have you deluded yourself into believing in your current existence? Is it true that death will demonstrate that my, our, your existence is nothing but an illusion? We are, in fact, mere empty space waiting to be revealed as such. Is that true? That's physicalism. C.S. Lewis, to requote him, this kind of thinking that I just went through must be nonsense. It must. First off, if H is not, then she never won, was, destroys it. It must be nonsense. Can you see why it is nonsense? So how did he arrive at this must be nonsense? Last week I ended with his conclusion. I reworded it a little as well. Uh, Lewis wrote about himself. And he is the you in the sentences I'm about to read. He's talking to himself. 
he does that a lot in this book, and it's difficult to figure out when he's talking to himself and when he's talking to the reader. Most of the time, he's talking to himself, and he never intended it to be read. It was for himself. He writes this. You, he's talking to himself, he's the you. You are, as it happens, extremely glad that H is a fact. In other words, she's still a fact and she continues to exist. But remember, she would not be equally a fact whether you like it or not. Your preferences have not been considered. The most powerful sentences I have ever read by a commentator. Let me repeat it. You are, as it happens, extremely glad that H is a fact, still a fact, continues to exist. But remember, she would be equally a fact, whether you like it or not. So the fact that he, I'm sorry, because he likes it, doesn't make it true, doesn't make it false. What you like is of no significance. Your preferences have not been considered. She would equally be a fact whether you like it or not. That, by the way, was written. I should put that on there, but I'm, I don't want to kill more time. I'll do it. It's so important that you know it. Your preferences have not been considered. run into that all the time. People tell me, I like this doctrine. I like this tradition. I like believing this. This is what I like. Your preferences have not been considered. It doesn't matter what you like. What matters is what is true. We are a church today, a contemporary church, that only cares about what we like. And that's a big problem. He wrote, your preferences have not been considered 15 pages after he wrote this. Feelings and feelings and feelings. Let me try thinking instead. And if anything needed to be said to the church today, that's it. Feelings and feelings and feelings. Try thinking instead. And that, by the way, is two pages away from this statement that he wrote. Why do I make room in my mind for such filth? And he's talking about physicalism and extreme Calvinism. Your preferences have not been considered is the end of the journey, pretty much, of that book. Uh, he goes on another chapter, but that is the end, primarily. He determines without any controversy that existence is a fact. H is a fact. We are all facts. Existence must be defined as continuous and eternal. No other definition can be possible. If we exist, we exist. There can be no partial existence or temporary existence or illusionary existence which is common today. There is just the fact of existence. That's all there is. He was able to reason that himself through that with no difficulty. And we don't. We struggle. There's just the fact 
of existence. Existence demands existence at all times for all times. That is what existence does. That is why to think otherwise must be nonsense. You can't partially exist. You can't temporarily exist. There is no illusionary mistaken existence. There is only existence. The others don't uh, have no function. They don't they can't possibly be true. True. How did C.S. Lewis get there so quickly and so firmly? And can you put aside your feelings and think yourself through this? And the answer is what? Yes, you can. Did he do it very easily? I don't know. I know he was, he grieved and grieved and grieved. I wasn't there. But his book is very short, so it seems to me that he did it pretty fast. If there is a time at which existence ends, then there never was any existence. What do we have instead? If all we are is mistaken about our existence, what has happened to us? Let me help you a little bit. If there never is, has been any existence, if all existence is illusion and a mistake, or temporary, whatever you are partial, then what we think is existence is really bankrupt and, and vacuity. Then what we have is a lie. We have all lied to ourselves, and we have been tricked by ourselves, or we have been tricked by someone. You see, all of us know something. What do we know? We're convinced of it. What do we know? We all know, I'll say no in quotation marks, we all know we exist. It's universal. It's unanimous. There is no one who has ever lived that did not think they existed. No one thinks otherwise today that is alive. There is not a single person, you will not find anyone, that thinks he is a, he's mistaken about his existence. So how do we get that way? Ask the obvious question. How do we believe this? How is it we all believe we exist? If we don't exist, then we believe a lie. What's the next obvious question? Where did the lie come from? Did it come from somebody who exists? How did he exist? Can he tell if we exist? Now, I hope you see Matthew 25, 14 through 29, the parable of the talents. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Because that's where in the Bible this is. Matthew 25, 24 through 30. I'm not going to read the whole parable because it's just too long. I have done it many, many times, explained it. Uh, it's very complicated. It is about existence. You may not say, think so when you read it, but it is. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, as you might know the parable, I have men who have been given things by God and, and, they, uh, and they, uh, they make it uh, expand, if you will. They make it uh, grow. But there's one guy who gets one talent and he buries it. And he, by the way, in the story, is the Pharisee. He's the Pharisee and he is the one who repeats the lie of Satan to God's face. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. 
What's he saying? He's standing in front of Jesus Christ, God, the Lord God Almighty, and he's telling him, I hid what I hid it. And I hid it because I knew you were what? You're evil. That's what he's doing. How's that going to go for him? By the way, we'll get to that in a minute. A lot of people out there that believe that God is evil, the author of evil. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. You're not only evil, you steal. You're an evil stealer. And I was afraid and went and hid your talents in the ground and didn't tell anybody anything about you. I'm the Pharisee. I went around telling people how evil you were my whole life. That's what I did. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. You believed I am evil. So you ought, if you believe that, you ought to have been afraid of me. But obviously you weren't. You just hid everything. And then came here and told me how evil I am. So you didn't even believe I was evil. If you believe that, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. At my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable Pharisee into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? This is God responding to the lie of Satan that he is the author of evil, that he cannot solve free will and omniscience, that there is no solution to sin. This is God responding to God as the uh, people who say that God is the author of evil, which is classic Phariseeism. It came from Satan. They, they say that even today that God is the one who created evil and he is the one who created lies. And Satan was just the vehicle of the evil and the vehicle of the lies that Christ or God committed or, and, or originated. And God takes this, you are evil or you are hard, this charge against him very seriously. What's he do with the uh, Pharisee? Condemns him. So you have to be very careful. C.S. Lewis made sure that everyone was very aware that when you call God evil, regardless of the sorrow that you're in or the frustration that you're in, I remember beating on my little Chevrolet Blazer. And I was much healthier then. And I, I gave it to Christopher, the vehicle, by the way. And there was a thing in the middle to put sodas and, and notes and things, napkins. It's made out of wood and it was bolted. And my house at Shelley Marie did not sell. And I was going to go broke. And I was very angry because there were other people there who had much inferior homes and theirs were selling and mine was not. Mine was built like I always have built things. It isn't going to come down ever. Um, and no one wanted it. They wanted the one that was prettier, that would 
was built like, say, this roof system. And those sold and mine did not, and Lori and I were going to go bankrupt again. And it's going to, it took us, by the way, seven years to pay off that debt. And everyone who bought that house made a lot of money, but Lori and I ended up painfully poor. And we struggled and struggled. And um, I'm driving home, and I grabbed that middle console thing. It was made out of oak, and it was bolted. And I tore it out of the car. I just literally ripped it right out in frustration because God had failed me. How could he do this to me? Now, I can't even imagine the loss of a wife like C.S. Lewis is doing. But you have to know, God takes this charge that you are evil very seriously. I hope you see now how existence connects to goodness. I haven't laid it out for you. I'm hoping you're putting it together without me. There are many who will insist, as you know, that God is evil, that the word good does not apply to God. You see, we regard these things as bad. I'll just throw out some of them. Death, cruelty, injustice, selfishness, viciousness, brutality, vindictiveness, etc. We say that's bad. The extreme hyper-Calvinist asserts that these are actually good. They make the argument that it is our own depravity that makes us think that injustice and cruelty and death and selfishness and viciousness and brutality, vindictiveness is bad. It's our own depravity that makes us think that. Those are actually good. I submit that if this is the case, what we think is bad is actually good. Immorality is good. Because they have to think it's good, don't they? Why? Because they're, yes, God made it. And they go back to Genesis. God made sin. He intended sin. He's the author of sin. He's the first liar. He just made a vehicle that lied. Satan. How common, by the way, is that belief system? It's powerful. Very common. And it filters into us because I am accusing God of being what? When I'm tearing apart my car. Knowing full well that Christopher would have it. So I had a back door. But what am I doing? God is in unfair to me. He has done something that is wrong. He is wronging me. I've done that a lot, in case you think I'm high and most holy. Get that out of your heads. If I submit this to you, if this is the case that God is really, I mean, good, there, if evil is actually good, and good is evil, then good and evil are meaningless, uh, which is contrary to the whole of Scripture, by the way. It is never called good or evil, light or darkness. It's always called good and evil, uh, light and darkness. Start at Genesis 2, 17, 3, 4, 3, 22. Go through the whole Bible. God is constantly contrasting good and evil. If you say that God is the author of evil, then there is no difference between good and evil. Applying good and evil to Him is meaningless 
if, and, and, and if you concede that good and evil don't apply to God, and it is meaningless, if you say that cruelty to him is in fact good, which is what the philosophy says or the doctrine says, I hate to call it doctrine, if cruelty is good, what else can be good? If viciousness is good, selfishness is good, death is good, justice is good, all that's good, what else is good? Lying is good. There's good to lie. First lie is good. C.S. Lewis says this quite logically, that heaven then might be hell or vice versa, which renders reality at its very root meaningless to us, which renders us total imbeciles. When you begin to think that God is not good, you are rendering yourself, and all of us, frankly, because we all do it, total imbeciles. There is no meaning. There is no point of trying to think about anything if God is the author of evil. Nothing can be understood. There's no purpose. There's no hope. There's no reason. There's just chaos. Good is evil. Evil is good. Just chaos. Which is exactly what? What is that? Evil is good, good is evil, all there is is chaos. What is that? What philosophy is that? Yeah, that's monistic evolutionarism. That is Darwinism. There is no good, there is no evil, there's just chaos. How did that get in the church? But it's here. You can go on the internet and look up C.S. Lewis and they hate it. He tears that to pieces. He tears it to pieces with, if H is not, then she never was. This must be nonsense. Your preferences have not been considered. That's how he does it. If there is just randomness and luck and purposelessness and nothingness, we do not exist. We only dream that we exist and our dreams don't even exist. So let me re-quote and repeat C.S. Lewis. Why do I make room in my mind for such filth? That's why they hate him. And you know, if you read, if you've read anything, you know, boy, they call him an unsaved, counterfeit, doctrinally unsound. They just go, they try to tear him to pieces so that you'll never read his books. You'll never talk about him, and you'll never... Was he perfect? Please don't get autographs from human beings. Uh, he struggles with the deity of Christ in this book. Uh, everybody seems to struggle with the deity of Christ. That's why I beat it to death all the time. Christ is God. He's always God. He's never not God. Quit it. Quit tearing the deity out of Christ. It's a lie, and it's untrue, and it's constant in every church. Hopefully never in this one. But they don't want you to read that sentence. Why do I make room in my mind for such filth? Now, put the two elements together. If existence is a lie, and if lying is good, if God lies, and evil is good, and good is evil, then everything is nonsense. There is no hope. There is no reason, there's only fear. 
That's all that's left. And God specifically, over and over and over in Scripture, what's He say? Fear not. One of the themes of Scripture. Psalm 23. Oh, i got a little time. Let's read it. I thought I'd be out of time by now. By the way, that song that you guys sang, My Savior, right? Is that what it was? Is that the... My Savior, my God, that, that was unbelievably fantastic. You people on the Internet, uh, you, you missed out, see? You should come here. That was beyond good. Doctrinally, and other, they had a little mistake in it, but I went right over it. I don't want to ruin the song for you. You'll find it on your own. It won't be my fault. Uh, they're not here, but I did a hardwood floor the other day for Brandon. I did it a few weeks ago, a uh, three-quarter inch hardwood floor, and I got it started for him. And it's the only thing you got to do when you lay down hardwood floor, and I've done a lot more hardwood floor than I care to admit. Uh, is you just got to make sure it's straight. And if it doesn't get straight, especially if you got a tile floor, and you had a tile floor, if the tile floor is not straight and the hardwood floor is not straight in the other direction, every day you will look at that beautiful hardwood floor and cry. That's how it works. And the tile, you will cry every day. And they called me up. They got going on it, and they called me up, and they said, I think we have a problem. And I went over, and I fixed the problem for them and straightened it back out. It's not hard. Fix it if you can catch it. I told them to constantly measure off of the line that I had given them. And I gave them a line that was straight to the tile, not straight to the house, straight to the tile, because you have to look at the tile and look at the hardwood. You'll never notice the house. And so uh, he tells me, he said, do you see anything else wrong with the tile or with the hardwood? Oh, what a, what a beautiful opportunity. And so, of course, I did. And I took him right over to it, and I pointed it at it, and I can't, and I put a big mark, and I said, that is bad. Come back here and look at it. And he went back and looked at it, and he went, oh. And I said, I want you to look at that every time you walk in your house. Yes, wasn't that good? No, that's not mean. <laughs> no, um, it is important that you recognize flaws in your buildings. Do not love your building. What's the old adage, right? Yeah, love people, use things, not the other way around, right? Don't love your hardwood floor, it's a thing. Love the person that tells you it's a flawed thing. Yes, yes. That's what, Okay, maybe you don't do that. Anyway, that fits in the sermon somehow. Figure out later. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice that the, the death is just a valley. It's an easy walk. It's not a mountain. You don't have, it's a valley. We're walking through a valley. That's a piece of cake, right? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Death is just a shadow. And we go through a valley. I will fear no evil. Because why? Goodness, pure goodness, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table. Surely goodness and mercy all the days of my life forever. 
That's what it says. Comfort, goodness, life, mercy, shepherding, restoration, valley, righteousness, anointing forever. That is God. Pure goodness. That's what he constantly says. Fear not. Continually says. C.S. Lewis said this, though, grief still feels like fear, which is the first sentence of a grief observed. And he said it again on page 33 and describes it. Grief still, still feels like fear. He never intended to let anyone read his jottings. He never wanted anyone to read it. He had to be convinced of it. He published it. Uh, first, he let him publish it under another name. Clerk. Can't remember the acronym. He didn't want anybody to know. And then he relented. He thought somebody might be able to reason themselves through this if I gave them the book. Somebody might be able to figure out the connection between existence and calling him evil in any way. As if he is evil, we don't exist. If existence is a lie, we don't exist. Existence depends on what? Goodness. And existence has to be there. It can't be any other way. You can reason your way through it. If H is not, then she never was. That must be nonsense. Your preferences have not been considered. That's your way. Get yourself through death, existence, goodness versus evil. And he did it so easily and so simply. I am leaving you with the assignment to figure it out. I'm assuming that you will. But in the event you won't, I'll cover it again next week. So that you can. Why must you? Welcome to life, baby. How it works. Welcome to life. This isn't good here. Not because God isn't good. For other reasons. That we've also covered. Let's uh, rise and be dismissed.